Our reading this morning is Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. It's found on page 1050 in the Pew Bible. Luke chapter 16, reading from verse 16. This is God's word. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell was where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Amen, and we thank God for his word. Well, you might find it helpful if you have a Bible and we turn together to Luke 16 to those verses that we read earlier, 19 to 31. It's page 1050 in the Pew Bibles. A week before it last, I was traveling through England with my mum and Sam on the way to visit my uncle who lives near London, and we stopped at Blenheim Palace. I don't know if you know Blenheim Palace. Blenheim Palace uh, is just outside Oxford. It was the birthplace of Winston Churchill. It's one of the most impressive stately homes uh, in Britain. At least it looks as if it is because it cost an absolute fortune to get into, so we didn't go. Uh, But we we did stop at the gates, Uh, and even the gates were impressive, and they they just made a great statement, you know, that that, that, uh, in here lives somebody really, really special, and and, uh, unless you pay £27 per adult, uh, then you're not going to get in because this is really not for people like you except to come and have a look. Well, that's sort of how I expect these gates were in the story in Luke chapter 16. Uh, Here we have a story about two men. Uh, One's really, really important. He lives behind some gates, and and one is, well, very unimportant as far as the world is concerned, and he is laid at these same gates begging. They couldn't have been more different, and Jesus used them to teach us some of the most important truths that we could ever grapple with. I'm sure even as we 
we read it earlier, you got a sense of, of how important these issues are and how important, therefore, it is that we engage with what Jesus says here. If you've not been here before, uh, during these summer mornings, we've been looking at some of the stories that Jesus told during his ministry when he was on earth. Uh, we call them parables, and, and, and today we have what's called uh, often the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Here's how we're going to think about it, very simply. We're going to think about the two lives that these men lived. We're going to think that, about the two destinies that are, are being experienced, and we're going to think of two paths that lie before us. So that, that's, that's how we're, we're going to navigate our way through this very important story that Jesus told. So two, two lives that were lived, first of all. The first man we're introduced to is the rich man, verse 19. Uh, he's incredibly wealthy. He has a designer wardrobe. He's clothed in purple. Uh, purple dye was a really, really hard dye to manufacture in those days. It took lots of little shellfish to make this purple dye, and therefore it was the the color of royalty, it was the, uh, it was the clothes that, that very, very wealthy people wore. And fine linen, we're told that he wore fine linen, another expensive fabric, and apparently, just learned this, apparently it referred to uh, undergarments. And, and so Jesus is, is almost with a little glint in his eye saying, even his underwear was posh. He, he, was, he was just a very, very wealthy man. And, and the standard of living uh, matched his dress sense. He, he lived in luxury every day. Some of the translations say he, he fared sumptuously. He feasted every day. And we're not told that he'd got his wealth by dishonest means or, or that he was a, a crook or anything like that. He, he was just, just rich. That, that was all that could be said about him. And then we're introduced to Lazarus, and the contrast couldn't be more dramatic. We're told that he was laid at his gate. In other words, he, he, he wasn't even well enough to, to go into the town to beg. Someone had to carry him. He had to be carried and, and, and put down at this gate. Presumably, he got something uh, from this begging spot, but he really was in, uh, in awful condition. His body was covered in sores. Uh, he... he he uh, knew that the rich man was feasting sumptuously every day, and he longed to eat for uh, what were for the rich man just crumbs and scraps. Uh, indeed, sometimes in the Bible we, we hear of, of dogs eating the scraps that fall from the rich people's table, and here there are dogs. And, and so, so here, here's the man thinking, you know, the dogs here are fed better than me. And those same dogs come and, and they lick his sores. It seems that that that's a positive thing, perhaps. It, it, it's saying sort of the rich man has no compassion, but at least the dogs gave him some attention. Incredibly different men. And, and this story has a context. If you cast your eye back to chapter 16, verses four and five, 14 and 15, sorry, we find that the, the Pharisees were sneering at Jesus because he'd been teaching about money. They love money. In fact, you see in verse 13, Jesus said, no servant, no man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and, love the, and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And then it says, the Pharisees who love money heard all this. They were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. So you see, here they were. These were the religious leaders. They, they love money. And, and so as Jesus is, is describing this rich man, 
he's describing for them everything that their hearts are really set on. He, he, he's the sort of man who they would think, boy, he's really living. He's really got it together. And not only that, they would think that, that it was really an indication of God's favor resting upon him. He, he must be on the right track, they would have said, if God is blessing him in such a way. But Jesus had just said that what we prize, God despises. No, that's because we're, we're, we're fallen, broken people. And so what Jesus is saying there is we, we naturally tend to, to put the wrong things at the top of the list whenever it comes to what is most important in life. Because there's no doubt, many of us at times see some of those who who drive past in, in tremendous cars or live in, in wonderful houses, and we think, boy, they, they, they've really got it together, haven't they? They're at the top of the pile. But Jesus is going to, to make clear that, that this rich man is on the wrong track altogether. And there are a couple of indications of that. One is his treatment of Lazarus, or the fact that he doesn't treat Lazarus really well at all. He could help him, but he chooses not to. And according to the Bible's analysis of human heart, that's not just wrong. It's a sign of something wrong inside. We don't really know God the way we should. But, but there's something else. And that is that Lazarus has one thing that the rich man doesn't have. He has a name. It's the only time in any of Jesus' parables that that he gives one of his characters a name, and it's a name with significance. It means he who, God's help, he who God helps. Now, I'm sure if you were to mention that to the rich man, uh, he would have laughed and, and said something, well, God doesn't seem to be helping him much at the moment. He should try living by my motto, God helps those who help themselves. But here is what's happening here, you see. Lazarus is depending on God. God is his help. He's looking to God. This has got to be a reminder to us that across the world, many of God's people, many of those whose help is in the Lord, don't have very much. They're at the bottom of the heap. Remember Paul was able to say to the early Christians in Corinth, not many of you, when you were called, were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the lowly things of this world. Lots of God's people, lots of people who look to God for their help don't look as if God is helping them very much by some of the standards that, that we might value. But Lazarus is one of God's people, and the implication here is that the rich man is, is not, and, and probably his wealth was the, the, the issue for him. Where is his security? Well, it's in his wealth. Where is his meaning? It's in his wealth. Where is his joy? It's, it's in his wealth. Where's his hope? It's, it's in his wealth. You see, there are only two things that you can actually base your life on. One is God and his grace, and the other is, well, something else. And this man's firmly in the something else camp. So two lives that are lived. Well, let's go on. Two destinies that are experienced. You, because it's not just the lives of these men that need to be taken into account. Jesus goes on and he talks about their deaths and what happens after their deaths. Their deaths are, are, 
are moved through very, very quickly. You, you know, we hear of a death and we want to know how and why and, and, and what happened. But, but here, that's not so important. It's what happens next that really matters. Verse 22 says, the time came when the beggar died. And the one who was overlooked and passed by is now the focus of the most amazing care. The one who was carried to, buy, to beg at a gate is now carried by angels to Abraham's side. His suffering and difficulties are, are, are over. It, it literally says he was carried to Abraham's bosom, which doesn't make a lot of sense to us, but it would have in Jesus' time. Because in Jesus' time, at a feast, people would have had a low table in the middle of the room, and they would have lain on low couches on one elbow. And uh, then you'd have reached in and, and dipped your bread and, and whatever there was on the table. And so you were lying on, say, your left elbow, and the person behind you was lying on their left elbow. And so to, if you were behind the, the, if you were beside the, the person who was the host of the meal, and you were to lay, lie back to speak to them, you would be literally on their chest. You'd be in their bosom. John was like that at the Last Supper with Jesus, you might remember. And so here is is Lazarus, who really had nothing in this world, and he finds himself beside Abraham at a feast in heaven. No mention of his funeral. Maybe he wasn't even buried. There wouldn't have been much fuss. But the one who was passed over as inconsequential in this life is really significant in the next. It's very different for the rich man. He had a funeral, no doubt in keeping with his station. We might expect that all sorts of kind words would have been spoken at his graveside, but we see how pointless they were because the next words we read are in hell where he was in torment. I'm not sure there are more solemn words in any of Jesus' parables. It's important for us to understand that he's, he's not in hell because He's rich. If that was the case, Abraham would not have been there because Abraham was a very rich man also. He was there sort of because of what he did with his riches or what he didn't do. He just spent them all on himself. He showed he had no compassion to anybody else other than himself. And so he showed himself to be a stranger to God's grace in his own heart. Later on, he's concerned to warn his brothers to repent, something that he had obviously failed to do. God had not been his help. He'd never called to God for mercy. And in his torment, he now sees Abraham far off with Lazarus by his side, and he calls out Father Abraham. So he's a, he's a covenant Jew, but, but only outwardly. But you see that his attitude to Lazarus has not changed. He doesn't even talk to Lazarus. He knows his name, but he talks to Abraham. And asks Abraham to send Lazarus on some errands. Now it's hard to be sure just how much of this story we're supposed to take literally as teaching us about what heaven and hell are like. Jesus is not really trying to do that. Calvin, for example, said that Jesus is telling us here of a conversation that could never really take place. He speaks, in, in other words, to, to warn people rather than to educate them about heaven and hell. So, for example, it might be unwise for us to, to take from this parable that uh, heaven would be a place where Abraham welcomes God's children or, or speaks on God's behalf. 
It may be unwise to think that those in hell can look across to heaven and carry on conversations with them there. Whenever we want to learn about heaven and hell, we, we should probably go to other places in the Bible. But that aside, there are clearly themes here that are really important for us to understand that are reinforced in other places. It's very clear that after we die, we go to, to one of two destinies. It's very clear that, as Ryan was saying to the boys and girls, those destinies are, are fixed. There is no movement between them. In fact, you notice that the rich man doesn't even want to go to where Lazarus is. He just wants his torment to be reduced. So there's no second chance after death. He's not even looking for one. He still doesn't want anything to do with God. And all of this just goes on and on and on. It's interesting that, that some people have suggested that this is actually not a parable, but, but a story. You notice in, in the NIV, it's not entitled as a parable. And people have suggested that because of Lazarus's name, that, that Jesus is actually talking about two people who had recently died. And if that's the case, think about this. This is not just ancient history. Today, 2019, 2,000 years after Jesus told this story, Lazarus is still enjoying the blessing and joy of heaven and the rich man continues to grumble and protest in the torment of hell. You see how crucial this is? You see, if we say, for example, that, that we don't believe in hell, then, then it would set us against the Lord Jesus who knows and who tells us all about it. We must take this all on board. We find ourselves interested in the one inch, as it were, of our earthly existence. And Jesus refocuses our attention on the miles of eternity. And the question, of course, is, well, who would we rather be now? This changes everything. Lazarus doesn't speak in heaven, but you can imagine asking him a few questions and saying, well, what was your life like before you came here? And he says, well, do you know, I can hardly remember, but, oh, I think it was, it was difficult. But, but this, this is just so wonderful. Two destinies that are experienced. And then finally, two roads to choose. Because all of this, of course, is put in front of us that we might choose. The Bible persistently calls us to choose. Choose this day whom you will serve just runs through all of the scriptures. And these stark contrasts are set before us to help us realize just how important that choice is. And what we need to see here is, is how we are to make our decision. Because very importantly, Jesus teaches us about how God speaks to us. Rich man, you see in the story, wants Lazarus, first of all, to slake his thirst, but then to go back from the dead and warn his brothers. Presumably he means that they would take a message or an appearance to them or whatever, and this would convince them. But you see that Abraham says in verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. Well, the rich man argues, no father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. 
Now, we might have some sympathy with him at that point. Uh, don't we sometimes think that? Wouldn't it be great if, if God would do some great miracle with, with us or, or, or with some of our friends? So that there's a, it was just unquestionable, something that someone could not doubt. People would believe then for sure. That's what we think. But we shouldn't be so sure. Because, you see, there was a time when Jesus did raise a man called Lazarus, in fact, different Lazarus, Mary and Martha's brother. But if you follow that story through John's gospel, it's really very interesting in terms of what it does to people, what effect it has on them. Word gets around that Lazarus has been raised from the dead. He's been dead for four days. And it says that many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. So for some, that miracle confirmed that Jesus was to be trusted, and they did indeed believe. But then on the back of that, the Jewish leaders called a meeting of their council, their Sanhedrin. And this is what they said. The chief priests and Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many, many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. And it says, from that day on, they plotted to kill him. So you think about it. Here they are, the religious leaders. They, they have no question that Jesus is doing miraculous signs, that Lazarus has really risen from the dead. And yet, rather than be convinced by it, they are more confirmed in their opposition. Such a man, such a miracle as the man is asking for did not change the hearts of those Jewish leaders. It hardens the resolve. And of course, there's Jesus himself. Probably Jesus is hinting at that when he's telling the story of a resurrection. Jesus rises from the dead. Many people see him. Many people's lives are changed and, and they are convinced. And yet what do some people do at that stage? Well, they pay the guards to make up a story to say that they've fallen asleep. They couldn't explain the empty tomb, so they cover it up. So, so what is it we're to be convinced by? What does God use to convince hearts? Well, Moses and the prophets the Word of God, the Bible. That, that's how God opens blind eyes. That's how God expects us to engage with, with, with these great issues of, of heaven and hell and where we go and what happens to us when we die. And so, so today, if, if, if some of us are here and, and we're, we're thinking, do you know what, I'm, I'm sort of warming to Christianity, I, I'm, I, but I would really love God to do something special for me, then I would really believe. Well, actually, Jesus would suggest, I think the, the passage here would suggest that, that that's probably not the case. If you find yourself skeptical about the scriptures, you'll find yourself skeptical about anything that God could do in front of you. And so what we need to do is take this word and these stories about this Jesus who has died for us that we might know him and, and, and read them and call upon God to make it clear 
Read the, the Gospels again and again until, until, as we've sometimes said, Jesus walks off the pages of the Gospels and into your life. Two roads. How, how crucial this is. How much it matters. Let's pray that we will all choose well. Let's pray together. Lord, we can scarcely begin to think of any matters that are more important for us to grapple with. Sometimes we feel that time is long and slow. But Lord, how it pales into significance, into insignificance in the light of eternity. Help us, Lord, not to be seduced by some of the things that this world might offer us, that we might find our lives based on the wrong things. But help us to call upon you as our help, to trust in you, to to know, Lord, that we have a home in heaven that we shall escape your wrath and hell. Oh Lord, not because we are good or because we have earned it, but because of your grace, extend it to the unworthy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.